Welcome to the PM&R Pocket Mentor Podcast, brought to you by the Association of Academic Physiatrists. This podcast is designed to introduce medical students to the field of physiatry through conversations and stories from leaders in the field. I'm your co-host, Karis Turner, and today we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Tom McNally, a pediatric rehabilitation physician from the University of California, San Francisco, also known as UCSF. 80 to 90 percent of the students or trainees have had an opportunity to acknowledge their humanity, their own humanness, and what that meant in the care of this patient. And that shift feels really important to me. Dr. McNally is a specialist in both pediatric rehabilitation medicine and pediatric palliative care. In his rehabilitation practice, he works with a team to address physical impairments so that kids can function and participate in life as fully as possible. To maximize his patient's quality of life, he may use medications, physical therapy, therapeutic equipment, and various procedures. In palliative care, he collaborates with a diverse team of providers who focus on optimizing quality of life and comfort for children with life-limiting or life-threatening illnesses. Dr. McNally earned his medical degree at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. He completed a residency in rehabilitation medicine at the University of Washington and a fellowship in pediatric hospice and palliative medicine at UCSF. He also has a master's degree in German language and literature from the University of Virginia. Dr. McNally, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Karis. I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Dr. McNally, how did you decide that PM&R was the right specialty for you? First of all, I would love it if you would call me Tom. That's my preference with my learners and with my, actually with my patients and their families too. I think it helps for us all to be on a first name basis and we could have a longer conversation about that as well. But uh, I would, I, I'd love to tell the story about how I got interested in PM&R because it feels um, very improbable in some ways. I grew up, my dad was a doctor, so I grew up in a household surrounded by medicine. My dad had lots of doctor friends who would be in and out of the house. And I went into medicine relatively later in life, but I was 38, almost 39 when I started medical school. And I had never heard of PM&R. I had no idea it existed, even well into my 30s. Um, uh, and the reason that I found out about it is because of my med school colleague, a wonderful guy whom I also encourage you to interview. His name is John Myers, and he's a physiatrist practicing in Twin Falls, Idaho. And John sustained a spinal cord injury in 1999, and as a result, his admission to med school was delayed by one year. So we ended up starting together in 2000 in med school, and we were in the same small group. So it was just a few things, you know, serendipity. And we got to be friends because we just had similar uh, adolescent senses of humor, and um, uh, and I just enjoyed him a lot. And um, so we got to be pals. And it was actually starting in my second year. He said, Tom, have you ever thought about going into PM&R? I think that would really be a field that suits you. And I said, I, I don't know. Uh, sure, I'll take a look at it. And the other serendipitous thing that happened is that the University of Iowa had hired their first uh, trained physiatrist in 2000, the same year I started medical school. 
was a guy named Joe Chen, and he was my first real physician mentor in PM&R, and he was enormously helpful to me, a really wonderful guide and friend. And he uh, helped me get some experiences during my uh, my clinical time uh, at Iowa, helped me think about residency programs and wrote me a very uh, supportive letter. And we stayed in touch subsequently as well. And uh, so it, as, I inter- as I did more research, as I started to do more time with it, it just fell really comfortably uh, into my uh, temperament. And I was a teacher before I became a doctor. And so I, I really like working with uh, people who are outside of my area of expertise. So it was nice to work with physical and occupational and speech therapists and psychologists. And I loved, particularly in, in pediatrics, but adults too, taking a patient and putting them kind of at the center of, in, symbolically, and actually we would sit around a table and talk about a patient together. And there's something really beautiful about, to me, the, the human experience of uh, focusing all of our attention on what we can do to make this person's life better. And that really resonated with me. All the th- things that we know about with physiatry, that it supports quality of life, that it adds uh, life to years rather than years to life. Um, that resonated with me as well, and it felt like work I really wanted to do. Um, and so I, it was a it was a pretty easy fit for me. Um, uh, once John said to me, "Hey, you should think about this." But it, I, if you had asked me the day I started in medical school what I would be doing, um, I, I would have never thought to say physiatry. And I'll just add parenthetically: when I was at the University of Washington, they had done some studies looking at the correlation between what people come into med school thinking they're going to do and what they actually end up doing. And it's only actually about 25% predictive. That is to say about 25% of the people who come in end up staying in the field that they were planning to go into. Most people shift. So if you're listening to this and thinking, oh, I'm shifting, is there something wrong with it? You are very much in the majority. The one exception to that, interestingly, was physiatry. And uh, people who came into med school planning to go into physiatry tended to stay in uh, on that pathway. And I think the reason that that happens is because people who knew about it ahead of time had a strong personal experience with physiatry. So, for example, they had a family member who needed rehab, or they themselves needed rehab, like John, or they were in a related field, so physical therapist, occupational therapist, who then decided to become a physician. And so I think that's why the numbers uh, uh, were a little bit higher. Of course, it's always a small relative number, too. So it, it wasn't like the University of Washington. I think where I think they did most of this research uh, had, you know, 15 or 20 people going into rehab every year. It was smaller than that. But over time, that's what they show. So. I love that. Adding quality to years instead of years to life. What you just said just goes to show how important mentorship is on this path to choosing your career. So it's great to hear your story. Thank you for sharing. So how did you decide on pediatric rehabilitation and pediatric palliative care? Well, when I came into medical school, I was thinking about pediatrics. As I said, I had been a teacher. I really enjoy kids. I was a dad. My kids, my own kids were nine, seven, and five when I started med school. And I, I love being a dad and love being around kids. And um, I still have a sort of playful, jokey uh, 
part of my character that I love to bring forward in the work, which I can do in, in uh, pediatrics. And so that was in the background already. Again, it was a little bit serendipitous. When I went to the University of Washington, I thought, well, let, let me see how my re peds rehab rotation goes. And it actually was really, really tough. I had a very difficult time. It was the end of my second year. I was burned out. I was really stressed out. I didn't know if I belonged in medicine at all, let alone PM&R, and I was thinking about maybe just quitting the whole, um, the whole enterprise, uh, which made my then wife kind of crazy after all the things she had been <laughs> up until that point. But happily, another mentor said, hold on, give yourself a few months, see how it goes, and my third year was much better. But at the end of my second year, when I did my pediatric rotation, and it was so hard and I was so discouraged. I thought, I, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I could do um, rehab at all. And so I was kind of turning away and wondering what else I was going to do. Slowly, as I got away from that and spent more time thinking about the, the time I had taking care of kids, and above all, I think the way I felt connected to my patients and their families, I thought this is really where the deep meaning was. I had one patient in particular, and I'd love to tell this story uh, now. This was a young woman who was severely injured in a car accident. And it was in the, uh, I started residency in 2005. And so this was in January of 2006 that she was hurt. And about three months later, she came to rehab. And so I was her primary resident for a good period of her time being on the rehab service. And um, after I went off the service, her grandmother, who was her caretaker, stayed in touch with me. And she would keep asking me questions and, um, and keep giving me updates on how she was doing. They lived up in Alaska, by the way, um, up in the southeast Alaska in Ketchikan. And um, uh, the nice two-part conclusion to this story is that um, not only did she remind me how much it meant to take care of her and how much I wanted to be invested in, in part of their lives, is that when I um, uh, was had decided that I was uh, going to be starting my career as an attending physician, she said, we want to be your first patients. Can you um, come, can we come see you in, in your clinic? And that vote of confidence from a family was extraordinarily important to me. Um, when I left UW, too, the second part of the story is when I left UW in 2016, I told her that I was leaving a sort of tearful farewell. And she said, well, that's fine, Tom. You can go away and go, but you need to promise to come see us in Ketchikan on a regular basis and check in. And so I do. I, every year or two, I fly up to Ketchikan for a long weekend and I go visit with them. And it's as much a social visit as everything, anything else. Um, but we've kind of become... Um, family uh, to one another and um, and that was part of what was really meaningful to me and I think that was possible because of the kind of work we were doing it was a, a tender exposed vulnerable moment for them they were trying to put their lives back together and I was fortunate enough to be able to walk alongside them while they did it so that that's what called me to pediatric rehab and then I was able to uh, take a, a position at UW. There was an opening, um, and I uh, I didn't do a fellowship, which you need to do now in order to get into rehab. I was in the last cohort that could uh, grandfather in, so I practiced for three years and then took the board exam and was uh, uh, certified as a PEDS rehab doc. Yeah, it's really a remarkable story, and I think some specialties lend themselves in different ways to different types of relationships with patients. And 
pediatric rehabilitation and palliative care in particular, I think, is one of those fields where, like you mentioned, people are really um, at a vulnerable position and, and you have a real great opportunity, but also responsibility to walk through those moments with patients. You also mentioned that you have kind of a playful personality, maybe silly at times. I've had the privilege of working with you in clinic, and I can inform our listeners, if I may, that you have a fantastic repertoire of, I think, what you call dad jokes through patients. So how do you kind of incorporate humor and your personality with some of those more tender moments with patients? You know, it's thank you for the question, Karison. It's actually really, I, I think I could talk for a long time about this because I do have some internal tension about humor. I think there are ways that we can use humor as a, as a defense mechanism at times or as a way of keeping people at a distance. And I want to be really careful not to do that. What I, what I love about it with kids um, is that it can be an invitation between us to be playful and to be linguistically playful because, you know, jokes are a, are a sort of known uh, social construct where, you know, if I say knock, knock, you're going to say who's there. We have already a kind of linguistic relationship that has certain uh, expected rules in it. And, uh, and then we have a release of tension when we're able to laugh at something together. Or hopefully we're able to laugh at something together. Um, I saw a kid in clinic last week. He told me a couple jokes. I told him a couple jokes. He said, my jokes are a lot better than yours. And um, that, was a, that was a nice connecting moment, too. So I, um, I, I have gotten this reputation for telling jokes. And actually, my dad was a, told a lot of jokes, too. But he told really off-color, sort of often unpleasant jokes. I thought, yeah, I like jokes. I like laughing, but I don't want to necessarily make people uncomfortable with them. And I like dad jokes because they're corny and, and sweet. And usually no one's harmed by the telling of the joke except for the dad himself. And so uh, I got this reputation for starting to tell jokes, and um, and then people started sending me uh, jokes or that they mentioned them to me all the time, and I started sort of cataloging them. Uh, I have about five or six books that I use to keep my um, jokes at least renewed every once in a while. Um, but it's uh, for me, it's part of the joy of the work too. It's really wonderful to laugh with people. And I just have to be conscious that I'm not using it um, inappropriately. And like I said, it, it diffuses tension. And sometimes tension is helpful, especially in the palliative care setting, because tension can be a place where things are being worked out emotionally or internally. And I don't want to interrupt that process at all. So that's that's one of the growth areas for me is uh, in, using, in using humor in my practice. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So you mentioned that you had children when you were going through medical training. What did you learn from that experience? And what advice do you have for trainees who are in the same shoes? Uh, that's, a, that's also a great question, Karis. Thank you. Um, I think that it reminded me, and it reminds me all the time still, because it was a difficult time for me to stay connected with my kids, honestly, when I was in training and they were going through their teenage years. I was super connected with them before that, and I was more absent, and I wasn't as available. And I think, in retrospect, I probably would have wanted to spend more time with them and more of a certain kind of focused, intentional connecting time with my kids. 
I had a had had a routine of the way I interacted with them, which I sort of took for granted up until they were nine, seven, and five, and sort of continued that in in shorter periods of time from the time I started medical school until they all graduated from college. And I think it would have served me better to say it's the relationships are changing because they're changing, because I'm changing, and because our circumstances are changing. And so the time we're going to spend together, you need to be thinking about it a little bit differently. Um, I think that's probably the most um, challenging part of going through medical training was um, the strain it put on my relationship with my kids. Um, and actually on my ex-wife. Um, and so I, I encourage anybody who's in a similar position to me or starting a relationship to really be in, intentional and think about what am I going to do because those are the, the really the primary sources of meaning and fulfillment in your life are your primary relationships. It's super, super important to pay attention to them and nurture them mm-hmm. as best you can. I'm only a medical student and I've already sort of felt just the demanding nature of medical training. Do you have any specific recommendations for how people can be intentional with their loved ones when their time is just taken up so much? I, I think it's probably unique for each person. I think you find the places where you have uh, meaningful interactions and you cultivate those times. Um, and uh, whether that's, you know, um, sort of using a... a, a, a therapy or some sort of um, other kind of like structured uh, conversation that helps you stay close on on the issues that are important um, I think is is one thing to do but I also think it's really important to continue to have fun with one another one of the things that I think is really difficult and I imagine a lot of listeners have experienced this too is that as you get more and more into medical training you sort of enter into a world that's a little bit sealed off from the rest of what other people are experiencing. And, you know, for example, to go into the anatomy lab or even to, um, uh, to be looking at prosections of um, human bodies is not the way most people spend their day. And to be uh, encountering um, illness, suffering, sometimes death and dying, is again the way most people don't spend their days. And to bring that consciousness into your uh, interactions with other people can be really difficult. Um, and you have to find a, a way to do it or a way to make it somehow dischargeable in other settings so that you can be your full self um, with the people that you that you love and, and who love you in return. That's great advice. Thank you. So, Tom, what do you enjoy outside of medicine? I have a, a bunch of things that really bring me a lot of joy. Um, I really love to read and write poetry. And um, as I was an English teacher before, so the, the written word means a lot to me. I'm also very interested in music. And um, it's primarily classical music, but I'm also, I mean, I agree with Duke Ellington. If it sounds good, it is good. So I, you know, I like just about any kind of music that sounds sounds good. And um, I've since got remarried and my uh, wife now, and I really love to dance. And uh, sometimes we dance around the, the uh, dining room, and that's, um, by the way, a way of connecting. Um, and I also really, uh, I love movies, and so I um, uh, explore a lot of that. You know, one of the most important things that I, I 
I think has been valuable for me as part of the managing the stress of work and the grief of um, of doing palliative care in particular is to have a really consistent exercise and physical activity regimen. And so I um, try to walk at least a couple miles every day and get a couple runs in every week. My wife and I go hiking in the woods. We're fortunate because we live here in the Bay Area close to a number of large parks. And uh, so we get out and do that frequently. And that's extremely restoring to me. So being out in the world, being out with uh, uh, trees and, um, and birds uh, is enough to kind of restore my soul. It sounds like you're doing well at cultivating those meaningful times that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I think well, where it helps to be a little bit older, you can be more intentional about these things too. Wise. <laughs> okay, so one piece of music and one movie that you really like. Oh, great. Good question. Um, huh. Piece of music is hard because there's just so much that, uh, that I really like. I, among... Um, you know, would, I would almost want to ask genre. Like, there's there's some contemporary composers who I really enjoy, who I think are fantastic. Like, there's the American composer John Adams, um, and uh, some of his orchestral work and his operatic work. Uh, so that's someone who's living um, for um, folks. If you're into jazz, like uh, listening to some Chet Baker, you can't go wrong with that. Um, and uh, we listened to a lot of uh, 70s pop because that's what we were kind of raised up on, too. And so uh, Joni Mitchell uh, is also a reliable one, but it could, could be a lot of folks. Um, and then movies-wise, um, I think, you know, the, I, I've done this thing on Facebook, you know, where you kind of do your top 10 movies, and those, those top 10 are always shifting around. Um, again, recently, if you haven't seen it, it's like it feels like it's a sort of required viewing for everybody who's uh, ever seen a movie. I would recommend that. And um, I'm really fond of a uh, director named Terrence Malick, and uh, he has a beautiful film called uh, The Tree of Life, um, which is a little bit obscure. It can be hard to get into, but it's, the, the imagery is fantastic. And it's about a family that's grieving. And that's um, always interesting to me because I deal with so many families that are grieving. Um, so I, I would recommend that. Terrence Malick movies in general, I think are wonderful. Fantastic. Thank you. I will put these in the show notes for the listeners to look up afterwards. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to shift to the next part of the interview. We'll, we'll talk a little more about pediatric rehabilitation. You are our first guest on the show who's a peds rehab doctor. No pressure at all. <laughs> we don't have to cover all of peds rehab right now. But I would love to know what are some common conditions that you treat as a pediatric physiatrist? The most common diagnosis that comes into the clinic, uh, kids carry coming into the clinic is cerebral palsy. And uh, so we take care of a lot of kids with with CP and um, uh, we could talk a little bit about the wide range of what cerebral palsy can look like. Um, basically, if you think about it being um, a change in the movement caused by the brain, so a palsy, change in movement caused by the brain cerebral, 
Uh, there's a wide range um, and everything from very mild CP to severely involved CP. And, uh, and with that, there can be really different how you think about rehabilitation. Um, whether or not the focus on equipment, medication, care coordination for kids who are severely involved and are unlikely to regain a lot of um, function versus those kids who have some milder impairments and with bracing therapy, sometimes surgery or Botox injections, we may be able to improve their gait, improve their efficiency and allow them to do more things on their own. So that's one area. We take care of kids, especially here in Oakland, which is a level one trauma center with, with trauma. So spinal cord injuries, um, brain injuries, sometimes uh, amputations. Uh, I used to see more kids with burn injuries up in Seattle. I don't see that very much now down in, um, uh, in the Oakland area. And uh, then there are other uh, neuromuscular conditions like uh, Duchenne dystrophy, um, limb girdle, etc. cetera, uh, kids who have um, impairments from that that may lead to disability, um, and uh, other neurodegenerative uh, disorders such as leukodystrophies. Uh, again, kids who may need uh, support with equipment or therapy to uh, maximize their function. And I, I feel like I'm missing a whole bunch there, but those are the ones that are kind of coming to, initially to my, to my mind. Yes, and I'm sure medical students may even come across some of those diagnoses on their pediatric rotation. So if there's some students out there who might not have a chance to do a rehab rotation, you can take a look out for those diagnoses when you're on your peds rotation if you come across them. What is your most and least favorite parts of your job? So I think both in rehab and in uh, in palliative care, there are opportunities as a physician um, to like really listen closely, to be really attuned to and gain insight into the experience of someone that's outside of yourself. I mean, by definition, it's just another person who's outside of yourself, but someone who may be having a very different experience in their lives. And for me, that opportunity to connect wavelength and actually to articulate something that they're experiencing that they may or may not be aware of and to feel that moment of connection uh, is it's really profound. It's almost a sacred moment for me. And that's the thing that I think I I hope to achieve with most of my encounters with both my rehab and palliative care patients. Um, You know, frequently I'll talk to families and um, we'll make a comment about something about the the challenges they face or the way they've been navigating and it will um, elicit tears from the person. And I'm not wanting to make people cry because I want them to be sad, but I'm happy when people share tears with me when we're sharing a moment that's meaningful. And so when we connect in that sense, that is, that's the part that I, of my job that I love the best. I also really enjoy the feeling of making um, small additions, sometimes big additions, to help a child live a better life and help the family live a better life. That's a really gratifying feeling. Um, and, and I guess my bias is that bearing witness to another person's experience is perhaps the most profound medical and healing advent, ad, um, enterprise we can undertake and uh, intervention that we can uh, provide. 
um, if when you, uh, uh, Karis, when you have been with me and have noticed the ways that I've been with a, a patient and then you reflect that back to me, I feel seen uh, and appreciated and there's something that you have done for me. You've provided me with a, a kind of um, therapeutic intervention, if you want to put it that way. It's a kind of healing, honestly, as well, by virtue of who you are. And every listener on this podcast, everybody who is uh, considering physiatry who may or may not go into the field, just please remember that you have this opportunity to have a therapeutic interaction with every person you see, if you can meet them with kindness, openness, and acceptance. And um, I, I implore you to try to cultivate those uh, attributes in yourself because it will work better. It'll make your patient's um, experience uh, gentle, fulfilling. The worst part of my job, I probably should have started with worse and gone to uh, better, but the worst part of my job, I think like it is for a lot of people, is really, um, is just paperwork. And um, we have, you know, multiple insurance systems and multiple ways that we have to document uh, things. And it's actually a source of real moral distress for me that some families uh, who you have two families who have very similar children in terms of their diagnosis and their level of impairment, but can have immensely different access to care resources um, and ability to support their child. And that's often determined, of course, by money and financial circumstances. It can also be by cultural background. It can be uh, by the virtue of language difference. And, um, and it also is reinforced by the system in general ways, both insurance and otherwise. And so not being able to provide people and kids the things that they would benefit from and not being able to provide it equitably uh, is a source of uh, those are really bad days when that comes to the surface. That was so well said, just all of it. Thank you so much. It's true. There are some really great moments of being a physician and there's some really difficult challenges that we face. And I hope that as the next generation of physicians, we can work together to make some change in a positive way, especially when it comes to just the burnout that physicians and even patients face when it comes to insurance and paperwork and all of that. Yeah, I think, and Karis, can I add just real quickly to that, a, a reason to be hopeful. Um, and this, because there's a really significant change that I have seen during my 15 years of being in practice after finishing residency in 2008. And that is when I first started working with medical students at that time, I would ask my students who I saw on a regular basis, you know, how many of you have had a patient die during your um, time on your medicine rotations or surgery or anything like that? And most of them would raise their hand. And I would say, how many of you have had a chance to debrief? How many of you had a chance to talk about the patient's death, about the impact it had on you as a person? Um, and very few hands would go up. And this is, again, 2008, 2009. Now, when I ask that question, I would say 80 to 90% of the students or trainees have had an opportunity to acknowledge their humanity, their own humanness, and what that meant in the care of this patient and who may have died. And that shift feels really important to me. And I think it wasn't like the AAMC put out a, 
an edict saying you need to start doing this now. I think this was a small incremental change that happened because a few people started doing it and then it pushed out, it pushed out, it pushed out. And now it's become more or less an accepted um, uh, and given part of what we do, one of the ways we respond when a patient dies. So those things are available to you as a, uh, as a group of students as well. And you'll see where the gaps are, make small steps in those directions and you can start, see some really big changes. Thank you so much for bringing that up. That's such an important part of um, training and also maintaining our humanity throughout. I'd love to share some resources with the listeners, just kind of some outlets for connecting with other students or other people about these things. I know there's the Nocturnist podcast has a really great episode on shame in medicine. And I wonder if there are some other resources. Does anything come to the top of your head? The Gold Humanism Society, if that's available at your institution, is a really great resource. Or if, you're, um, if your institution has a healer's art uh, uh, curriculum, I think that's also a, a great resource just for helping to cultivate your own humanity. Um, there are one of the other interventions that has, has been a, a evolution over the last, I think, 10 years or so, something called the PAUSE which uh, folks will do in the uh, emergency room in the OR if a, if a patient has died. Before they go on to the next thing, they just take a moment, a pause, to say this, is, um, this was a person, they lived a life, we were part of their care. Let's acknowledge all of that. It's a very brief thing, but it's still an important thing, and it's an important gesture towards our own humanity again. So I think those sorts of initiatives are out there. That's great. Thank you so much. I think especially the pause um, is something that everyone can implement immediately when they're on a rotation. I know that I had an attending walk me through that on an emergency medicine rotation, and it really meant a lot to me that that attending recognized and, and took that moment. The next part and last part of the interview, we would love to hear some advice. In particular, what are some common pitfalls that you see medical students or early trainees fall into in regard to career decisions? How do you advise we avoid these common mistakes? I suspect folks have heard this before, and um, uh, it, it can be a little bit hard to find who your people are and where your place is on a relatively short rotation. And it can be very compelling if you just happen to fall in with a group of people whom you connect with socially or interpersonally, but it may not ne necessarily reflect what your days are going to look like. And so um, I, I think just being mindful that, uh, that there are other aspects that may contribute to your um, satisfaction in the work um, than having had a good rotation um, is important. Uh, so... Um, I think the other pitfall that is really important is, uh, at least for me, is that being motivated by uh, money or remuneration seems to me experientially to be a recipe for people being unhappy in their work. Uh, I think if you're in, in getting into medicine to make a lot of money, you've probably chosen the wrong field, actually. I mean, we're going to do great. We're going to do better than 98% of the people in the world. But if you want to be in that super high level of uh, money-making with um, without a, a really, I mean, pro profound emotional investment, then this is then it's not the right place. And, and I think because the work is so relational 
because it's so um, much about human suffering and about the experience of other human beings, that if you are in it because you are uh, thinking ka-ching over the course of the day every time you see a person, then you're, um, you're setting yourself for really uh, profound disappointment. And I, th I think that's actually been demonstrated in some studies, too, that as, uh, particularly as fields go through times where they get higher remuneration, actually satisfaction goes down um, among the clinicians. So I, I guess the, the more general term for that is, or more general way of thinking about it, is that your connection with your patients and with the people you work with are what are going to provide you with fulfillment. And think about places where you feel you can most provide, find that type of connection and fulfillment, because I think that's where your um, satisfaction as a cl clinician is going to come from. That's great advice. Thank you. What would you tell yourself if you could go back in time when you were graduating residency? I, th I think I would probably say to trust the process, uh, to don't expect, I would say, Tom, don't expect to know everything right now and don't be embarrassed about not knowing things that you just don't know. I think I, I put a lot of pressure on myself to feel like I needed to command a lot of knowledge that I just didn't have or to have procedural skills that I just didn't have. How come you don't know this? You, you, should, you should have learned this in medical school. You're way behind everybody else. There was a lot of sort of very negative self-talk that was not helpful for me. So to, to let that go a little bit and to say kind of cultivate a beginner's mind. Say, so, you know, you're, you've got a lot of training and you still have a lot to learn. And that's okay. And the fact that it's actually what you want it to be. The other thing that I would say is that, yippee, this is actually a really nice time. Because as an attending, one of the things that I've found is that my learning at this point is disconnected really from evaluation. That is to say, I don't have to take a test I don't have, you know, I'm not learning something through my first and fourth years as I did a medical student to get ready to take step one, step two, step three. Same thing for my board exams. What I learn now is what I want to learn in order to take better care of the patients who are right in front of me. And it's, it's really liberating because there's so much fascinating stuff to know. It's so great. It's the great thing about medicine. I got so much wonderful, interesting things to learn about. And I often felt this kind of conflictual relationship like oh damn this is more information that i need to shove into my head so that i can put it out on the test i hate this information <laughs> and now it's more like i kind of love it it's i I'm, actually i don't just kind of love it i do love it it's it's really fun for me oh, i've got a kid coming in this is a syndrome i haven't seen before let me read about it see what i can learn about oh that's fascinating how can we help this child and so the so learning is scaffolded very differently and the relationship to um, our information is, is very different too. And that's a great thing. And I would want to go back and say, Tom, um, enjoy that. Enjoy that. Well said. Thank you. What resources do you recommend to medical students, whether that be books, podcasts, music? We mentioned the Nocturnist. I really cannot recommend highly enough their series on shame. I think it's so, so important, and there's a, there's a lot to be learned that was broadcast in October. And so I encourage everybody to do, to do that just for the purposes of understanding what it's like to be a clinician. Um, I think from, um, from 
specifically for rehab, um, you know, I guess I don't really have a great, I'm sorry, I don't have a great uh, uh, specific recommendation of things to look at outside of um, the area, except for, you know, the thing you always hear at the end of the, if your rotations keep on reading, um, continue to uh, explore in, in the area. I mean, I think reading, reading about specific diagnoses or things that feel important to you, uh, come up with your patient care feels like a good idea. And, um, and I, more generally, I think, um, I, I really think it's important to cultivate our, our humanness. You've heard me say this a number of times during this uh, talk. And however that happens for you, as I said, for me, it happens to be poetry. For other people, it might be um, through music or other, um, other domains. I think the arts are a way that we can um, really be more fully present for the people we're caring for and um, they can help us see into their experience. So I encourage that as well. Thank you so much. Could you share a parting poem with our listeners? So this is a, a poem that is really important to my wife and uh, also has been important to me as well. And it's by Mary Oliver. It's called Wild Geese. I'm sure a lot of people have heard it before. And um, I think the message in here, you know, we are um, we are held to a high standard of knowledge, of performance, of um, presence as medical students, as trainees, and as attendings. And it's also okay to cultivate a place of being all right with ourselves. And uh, that's what I hear with um, wild geese. So, wild geese, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscape, over the prairies and the deep trees the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Beautiful. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Karis. Any other parting words for our listeners? Um, find your people and hold on to them, um, professionally and personally. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Pocket Mentor Podcast today. Thank you, Karis. Have a great day. All right. Cut. Cut. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of Pocket Mentor with Dr. Tom McNally. Do you have questions you'd like discussed on the show? Submit your questions online at www.physiatry.org or by following the link in this episode's show notes. Follow the AAP on Twitter and Instagram at aaphysiatrist or at our website, physiatry.org. Until next time, take care. <laughs>